if you will, let me invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 17. <clears throat> John chapter 17. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing our verse-by-verse walk through the Gospel of John. And we have come now to a high and lofty passage. It is a solemn occasion that we are reading about, and it is of the most intimate nature. And so accordingly, let's read it with the same tenor and respect. Our Lord has just finished his exhortations to his apostles, and we do not know exactly where in the timeline he is, but it's my estimation and my guess that he is at the Garden of Gethsemane. Commentators disagree over this, but at the end of chapter 14, we saw Jesus giving instructions to his disciples at the end when he said, rise and let us go up from here. Well, that we know that occasion was the communion Passover supper. And so between there and now, Jesus has come to the Garden of Gethsemane, that great hour of trial in which he prayed, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so somewhere along this way, we have it from the mouth of John, John the Apostle, an eyewitness to these things, a record of the prayer of Jesus. And this is the beginning of it. The whole of chapter 17 is this prayer. Let's read the first five verses this morning, shall we? John chapter 17, verse 1 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We're beginning now looking at the words of Jesus, his prayer to the Father, just before they come at the hands of the betrayer Judas and take him to be crucified. And as it is with other godly men, maybe like me, you have read of stories of men who were devout men of prayer. I I remember very clearly reading the testimony of, of some of Martin Luther's peers, and it said about him, though I cannot remember the source, and if I'm wrong, forgive me, but it was rumored and testified that that to witness And to catch Martin Luther in his prayers privately with the Lord was a solemn occasion. And it said it was a a holy atmosphere all around to catch him in his prayer closet. You and I, brothers and sisters, are doing that today. We have walked into our Lord, our very Lord's prayer closet. And we have entered into the the discourse between God the Son and God the Father. This is the second of all only two prayers that are recorded for us in John's gospel, the other one being at Lazarus's tomb when he prays to the Father in the company of the witnesses. The other gospels gives us records of other prayers that Jesus prayed, but none are as detailed and as in-depth as this. 
We might properly call this, as John MacArthur said, the Lord's Prayer. You know, we often call uh, the disciples' prayer the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But that's more of a model prayer for Christians to pray. It's not the prayer that our Lord prays. This prayer is the prayer our Lord prays. And it is uniquely ascribed to Him. As we walk through this text over the next coming weeks and when I return from my time away, we'll find that Jesus' prayer here is in many facets unique to Him. And it's not really in every way a model for us. For example, in this next chapter, we'll find that there are no confessions of sin. But the Scriptures always teach us that we are to pray, Father, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus obviously doesn't have to pray that way. And so this is not strictly a model prayer for us, but it does give us insights about how to pray. And so we're going to walk through it beginning this morning. And I'm calling it the petitions of our high priest. If you understand Christian theology, and I'm going to give you some in just a minute, you understand, and even some Bibles put it as a heading above this passage, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's one of the works of Jesus in his redemptive accomplishment to be the priest of his people. And this text gives us a, an example of the intercessions of Christ before God the Father on behalf of his people. There are a number of things we'll talk about in just a few minutes, but before we get there, let me just cover that with you for a bit of time. I need to give you a little bit of a, a primer or a theological education on priesthood. And if, you, if we do this, you will be able to see the, te- the themes coming out and popping out as we go through this passage. So just quickly, a brief background on a priesthood. And so we have to ask the question in the beginning, what is a priest? What does a priest do? Well, mark these down. You won't have time to ride the, uh, read them with me, but Hebrews 5.1 gives us an introduction to this, uh, what a priest is. A priest, we're told in Hebrews 5.1, is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so a priest is a necessary office as a result of our fallen condition before God. You and I are born sinners into this world. And ever since the, the fall of Adam and Eve, men have needed mediators or a mediation between God and man because of our fallen state. God erected in the Old Testament the priesthood of the, Levitical, of the Levites. And they acted as appointed by God to be in behalf of men, listen, in relation to God. You might compare a priest and a prophet. In the Old Testament, two ministerial offices existed. One was a priest, the other was a prophet. The prophets in the Old Testament existed as God's messengers to the people. Remember, in reading in the Old Testament, you would hear, Thus says the Lord. Well, there it is. The prophets would come as messengers from God to give the message to the people that, from God that he wanted them to have. On the contrast to that, priests acted as messengers to God from the people. Priests would be God, the people's representative. In the Old Testament, Aaron, the chief priest of, of, the tribe of tri, all the tribes of Israel, had as an example of this a breastplate, a, an ornament that hung around his chest, and on it were listed all the tribes of Israel, symbolizing that he acted as all of their representatives before God. 
So the priest's job, brothers and sisters, is to approach God on behalf of the people. And this is something you should consider. You and I do not have the prerogative or the liberty to go before the thrice holy God on our own. You will not be accepted. You will not be received. Because you're a fallen creature. And, and you're, a sinner. you're a sinner against God. And so God doesn't accept your person. He doesn't accept your pleas. And He doesn't accept your offerings. Because you are un, uh, unacceptable to Him. We are unacceptable in our fallen condition. And so we need a priest. We need someone who can do that for us. He, a priest goes, approaches God on behalf of people. And the scriptures teach us in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, that Jesus serves this function for us. Jesus does that for you. He acts as your priest. A couple of passages here for you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, listen, on our behalf. That's the priestly work of Jesus. Romans 8.34 says this, when it talks about the great assurance that you and I as Christians have of our acceptance before God, listen to how it, he, Paul rhetorically says this. He says, who is going to condemn us? Who is there in all the creation that can condemn God's people? And his answer is, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Uh Uh-oh. In the history of, of my time here, this has never happened. We're about to see how good a memory I have. So what we see here then, brothers and sisters, is the function of Christ as a priest for his people. Now what I mean by that is when we look at John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus in one of his priestly functions. And what is that function? That's intercession. Intercession. Now that's a, that's a big term, but... It, uh, understand very clearly intercession and atonement go along with one another interceding simply means to pray on behalf of another when you pray for me or when i pray for you we're interceding and as intercession was a function of priesthood and intercession and atoning sacrifice go together let me give you an example of this in the old testament priesthood again on the sacrificial day of atonement a priest's work was central in that he would go before God the Father and he would, he would petition them and uh, obtain forgiveness on the basis of that atoning sacrifice. So the animal would be slain, the blood would be collected, and it would be presented before God, God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And this would obtain forgiveness and acceptance and, and a right standing with God. Uh, aspect of that is intercession. It's helpful to think of it this way. Intercession and atonement go hand in hand. It's like two sides of the same coin. And again, we have a picture of this in the Old Testament system. 
There was in the Old Testament tabernacle a piece of furniture called the altar of incense. Now on this altar, it was a small table, and it, had re- it was erected in like fashion to other pieces. It, would, it had a top with it with, with side walls around it, and it would hold uh, burning coals of fire. It would st- this piece of furniture stood just before the, the Holy of Holies, and the only purpose this piece of furniture served was to burn sweet incense before God, the presence of God. They would put specific recipes of incense, and they would perpetually burn and be renewed every day as an offering up to God. But for us this morning, brothers and sisters, let me remind you of this. That fire that was on that altar, that altar of incense, was only to be maintained by coals from the other altar that stood out in the courtyard or in the yard. That altar was where the animals would be sacrificed, placed upon the burning altar, and would be consumed. And only coals that were stained with the blood of those animal sacrifices could be used to maintain the altar of incense. And here's our lesson. Jesus Christ, his intercession, his prayers to God the Father on behalf of his people are always and only in virtue of his atoning death for them. Jesus prays for you and he intercedes to God the Father for you in virtue of his death. It's as if those are the coals which fuel his prayers and his intercedings to God the Father. When the scriptures tells us that Christ is making intercession for his people, he is pleading the merits of his death and resurrection and his works on their behalf, achieving their right standing before God the Father. And so God, Jesus acts as our priest, appealing to God on our behalf because of what he did on the cross. And let the church say amen. It is because Jesus is your priest that you are forgiven and accepted to God. It is because Jesus intercedes with, before God the Father because of his death on the cross that you can have a right relationship to him. And so that, with that in mind, brothers and sisters... Understanding that, let's read and walk through our text now. Jesus is here, functioning as a priest, praying for his people. And we might divide this passage of Scripture up into three portions. This will be the three main headings of our chapter. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus properly prays for himself. He says it twice, verse 1 and then in verse 4. Father, glorify your Son. And again, in verse 4, I glorified you on earth. And then in verse 6 through verse 19, Jesus prays for his apostles. He says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm praying for them. Speaking about the apostles. And so Jesus makes petitions and intercessions for the apostles. And then in verse 20, he changes his intended audience to not merely the apostles, but the church at large. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this brings to conclusion, verses, chapters 14 through 17. It's the last testament of Jesus, we might call it. The principles of the new covenant and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Our point this morning, brothers and sisters, in the first place, we will see as we walk through this text, 
that as Jesus prays and as he begins his prayer, he points us to the primary purpose and mission of God in the earth. He gives us the central aim for which all that God is doing in Christ and even in his church. What's that? The glory of God. You see, the mission and the aim of Jesus when he came to this earth was not primarily about you and not primarily about me. It's primarily about the glory of God. And he does that through saving his people. Consider with me Roman numeral one, the ultimate purpose of Christ's coming. Verse one says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says here, the hour has come. John's gospel has shown us that the hour is talking about the hour of his crucifixion. Earlier in chapter 7, we were told that no man could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Lay a hand on him meant, uh, meant to take hold of him to do him harm. And ultimately that did happen, but not until the hour, the appointed hour had come. Jesus' death had been predetermined by God the Father to the extent and detail, very detail, of the hour and the minute in which he would die. And so we see here, Jesus, in light of this, reflects on this, and in his prayer to God the Father, says, The hour has come, the hour of my death. And this is the primary purpose of, of, God, of, of God's coming, Christ coming to the world, this world. He's not asking God to do something new, Father, glorify your Son, but He's consecrating Himself. He's dedicating Himself to the very purpose that the Father had sent Him for. Note with me in verse 19, I know I'm jumping ahead, He says, and for their sake I consecrate Myself. That's the whole tenor of this entire prayer. Jesus is consecrating Himself to the will of the Father. The hour has come. When He's talking about His hour... He means the hour of his sufferings, the hour of his death, the hour of his resurrection, and then his ascension to God the Father, and his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords. But note with me, brothers and sisters, the paradigm here. Jesus, when he talks about the cross, is not viewing it as an hour of defeat, but the hour of glory. There's no defeatism in Christ's mind, There's no, but it's focused victory and triumph. Jesus says the hour of his crucifixion is the hour in which he will be glorified. All of his attributes, all of his divine wisdom and his righteousness and his justice and his love will be put on perfect and clear display for all to see as he hangs on that cross and dies for the sins of his people. And he says, Father, glorify your son. And it's the hour of his glory. That's why we as Christians today, we sing and we glory in the cross. Because it does, it's not the symbol of Christ's defeat, but His greatest victory. You see, you and I would look at, the at a cross as the last place for us to get glory. Who wants to be glorified in suffering? Who wants to find glory in, in pain and, tri and trial and difficulty? But Christ, knowing the plans and purposes of his Father, looks through the cross to what God would do through it and prays, Father, glorify me. 
Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Who, talking about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Isaiah 53 told us beforehand that Christ would, out of the anguish of his soul, would see see and be satisfied because many, he would bear the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 12 says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the song strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus here looked through the cross and endured, the, despised the shame, so that through it he could bring glory to God the Father and his Son and himself. He calls on God to glorify the Son. Now note with me, brothers and sisters, you and I are never to pray that. In the sense of glorify in the first person. Glorify me. Father, glorify me. That's never to be our prayer. And if Jesus had been anyone than who he was, it would have been blasphemous for him to pray that. But being the second person of the Trinity and equal in status and rank with God the Father, it was perfectly adequate for God the Son, to pray to God the Father, Father, glorify your Son. And he reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we are not the end of God's redemptive plans. Get this in your mind this morning. This is some free, freedom-bringing truth for all who can receive it. You are not the center of God's universe. You are not the end. Christ is. Jesus, properly speaking, did not come here merely to save sinners. The chief and primary purpose for which Jesus came to this earth was not primarily to save you. You and I are means to an end. And it's the greatest end that could ever be. It's the glory of God. The greatest and the highest aim in all this earth is for God the Father, through God the Son, to be magnified and glorified for how excellent and wonderful He is. And it just so happens that God decided that the way He wanted to do that was through saving wretched sinners like you and me. Praise be to God this morning. He could have found other means and other methods to bring himself glory, but he so saw fit of his own divine free will to say, I'm going to magnify my name and my glory by saving wretches like Blake Keenan. You see, the end through which, for which this whole world exists, the reason why God created it, the reason why He allowed it to fall into sin and then to be redeemed through His Son, Jesus Christ, is so that the Son, God the Father, might be glorified through God the Son. You and I are not the end. And brothers and sisters, it is the essence and the heart of sin where we get that in reverse. The very fundamental problem with mankind is that we live disordered from that reality. We're trying to live like I am the end. My desires are the end. My aims and my goals are the, are the fulfillment of true living and true purpose. But only when we come to repentance to God to see that we are not God. He 
is God. And he's the one for which we serve and live. And even the son, when he was here in this earth, came not for himself, but for the glory of God the Father. This is the end of Christ coming to this earth. And brothers and sisters, this is why as a church we have purposed together to make this our aim and our end. Imperfectly, yes, always repenting and catching ourselves stumbling at it. But in the very definition of Grace Baptist Church, we exist to the glory of God. The purpose of Grace Baptist Church is to glorify God. The purpose of Grace Baptist Church is not to win as many people as we possibly can. Though we want that. We may not even accomplish. What happens if we don't accomplish that? Well, we can still glorify God. You see, the purpose for the church, the purpose for all things is God's glory. Roman number two this morning. But if it's God's, the Son's purpose to bring glory to the Father, how will the Son bring glory to the Father? How's he going to do it? I want you to see with me point, part two, the Father's predestined plan. Now, if I, I, I'll be honest with you. If I was contriving a way in my fickle and, and limited means, I would have contrived a different plan. If I created a bunch of creatures who rebelled against me and, and were fallen in their sins, I might think the best way to show my glory is to show up with a host and an army and to throw all of them, throw all of them down. If I had a bunch of rebels living in my district under my watch, I might think that the best way to establish myself and my glory is to come down and just do away with all of them. Get the victory over them. Ride with a conquering horse. But that wasn't the Father's plan. Listen to what he says. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you've given him. That's the Father's plan. This is the ground and the basis for Jesus' prayer. Jesus highlights that he's not praying for some God to do something new in the earth. He is, he is amplifying. He's saying, this has been your plan all along. Jesus is not going rogue when he says, Father, glorify me. He's not expressing some kind of independent bone where he's trying to separate himself from God's will. He says, no, this has been your plan from the very beginning. You have given him authority over all flesh. What was the Father's will and plan? Two things he says here. First... That the Son should have authority over all things. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what we mean when we say Jesus has all authority given unto him in heaven and in earth. Jesus has, in the words of Revelation, title deed to all of mankind. He has in his hands the scroll that was given to him. Christ has authority been given to him by God the Father over all mankind. This means all governments, all rulers, all people, and every single thing on this planet earth, Jesus puts his finger on and says, mine, that exists for me, that belongs to me. And all of it exists under his jurisdiction. But there is a specific purpose for this authority being given to him. And that's the second thing he says there. You have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life 
to all whom he's given him. Jesus has a definite aim in his coming to this earth. Jesus' authority was not to come and to execute judgment upon all mankind in his first coming. His first coming was not to judge, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And Christ's authority, his, 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 his rule in the earth, was, was for the specific purpose of saving for himself a people. That's what he means here, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Now, note with me a few things about this. This is what we properly call the doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of particular redemption on full display. Namely, that Jesus had a definite group of people in mind when he came to this earth. Note with me, he calls them those to whom you have given him. These are the, those who have been given and entrusted by God the Father to God the Son. And Christ's role was to save these people. Note with me a couple of verses. I'm going to read them. Back in John chapter 6, verse 37, says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 39 then said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John six forty four, And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we see then, brothers and sisters, that all through the Gospel of John, Jesus has been speaking about divine election. And this this is a very unpopular doctrine in our day. And I know it's going to be hard for some of you to receive this morning, but bend your minds and your wills to the Scriptures this morning and consider what it says. If we take John's gospel, John's gospel as it says, God had a definite purpose, a plan, and it include a specific group of people, those whom the Father had given him, those who God the Father had elected in eternity past and gave them to Christ as his responsibility as their representative. And it was for these people that Christ came. Christ had been given authority from the Father to come and to ransom for himself a people. It's like Revelation 5 says. Uh, I'm going to misquote it, so I'm going to read it. Excuse me. Revela- Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll... And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was for these people that Christ came. It was for these elect people, his, his church from, since before the foundation of the earth. God sent Christ for the purpose of bringing them to salvation. This is a definite plan, a definite purpose, and it's limited in its scope. Note with me, brothers and sisters, he has authority over all flesh, over all nations, over all people groups, so that from all people groups, those who have been given to him, he may draw them out of the world to himself and save a people. 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This was the purpose of Jesus, his coming and his death. Though it is true, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus gives his life for the world. That does not, though, mean that all the world will be reconciled to God. All men's sins will, are not atoned before God the Father. Otherwise, there would be no hell. Rather, brothers and sisters, Christ came for his elect from all the world. Whether Jew or Gentile, Hutterite, Ukrainian, or redneck Mississippian, Christ came for his elect people. And he acts as their mediator and their priest. And it is for them he prays. For them he dies. And for them God's redemption plan applies. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I know this is a hard doctrine to receive, it, but it's the scriptures, for one. But secondly, it has glorious applications to it if you can receive it. Charles Spurgeon was uh, once uh, costed about this, and that one man came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, that doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, he says, I, he says, I, th- I find that a narrow view, a hard doctrine. He says, I, I just can't receive it. He says, I just uh, I can't. I can't take that. He says, this is too narrow doctrine. Such too narrow of a doctrine. It's too difficult. He says, I prefer a wide view of Christ's atonement and sacrifice. And Spurgeon, as the pithy man he was, had the best response I've ever heard. He said, he said sir, he says, true, it is true. It is a narrow bridge. He says, but better a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the river than a wide bridge that, does not, that only goes half the way across. You see, brothers and sisters, the reason why we we talk about things like this is because we boast in and we glory in the reality that though God had a limited scope in what he was accomplishing, he actually accomplished what he came to do. Jesus, when he came to this earth, did not come to spread his atonement across the earth and say, now, and leave it in the hands of men as if it were possible that no one could ever be saved. Christ, when he came, had a definite, definite people in his mind. And it is for them that he died. And he guaranteed the outcome of, of his redemptive plan. Do you think, for one second, Christ was going to come to this earth and, and, get, and do what he did and give what he did at the expense that no one could come and be saved? Far be it, brothers and sisters. God is too mighty and wise to send his son to this earth and to, and to risk that it ever be possible that, that his death would go in vain. Christ in his coming to this earth gave his life for his people and as Isaiah says, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God the Father planned from eternity past that his son would have for himself for a people and he didn't leave it in the hands of men to decide whether or not that was going to be the case. He predestined it, he planned it, and he will have the reward for his suffering. Christ will have his people. You better bank on it, brothers and sisters. The bank system may fail, the Canadian government may fall, the whole world may come up in an upheaval, but Christ will have his people. It will happen.
I'm belaboring this a little bit because I know it's a hard doctrine. But let me point out two points to this. There are two things we need to see in in Jesus' designation of God's elect people. He says it over and over again, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna settle in on it now and then we'll have it as we move forward. First off, note with me, he does not call them the believers. He could have said that. He could have said, uh, to give eternal life to all who believe in me. He said that in earlier passages. He calls them those whom the Father has given to me. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' death will not be in vain. In essence, says, Father, you gave them to me in eternity past, and they will receive eternal life. And this assures us, brothers and sisters, the certain success of gospel ministry. He will have the reward. He will have his people. Why? Because God will be glorified. If God, if it were even possible for Jesus to come to this earth and to die for the sins of mankind and, and no one believe and no one come to faith in Jesus, where's the glory in that for God? No, no, no. God does not leave his glory at such fickle hands of men. God will be glorified and he will have his people. I like the way Barnes said it here. Let me read this to you. He says, He, Jesus, makes it an important distinction between all flesh and those who are given Him. He has the power over all. He can control. He can direct. He can restrain all men. He has power over every man. Wicked men are so far under His universal dominion and so far restrained by His power that they will not be able to prevent his bestowing redemption on those who were given him. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear that? He's given him authority over all flesh. Not a single man on the face of this earth is outside the dominating control of God, God Almighty. Why does Jesus have that control? So that not a single person on this whole entire earth can keep God from accomplishing what he's aiming to do. God is doing, accomplishing His purposes in the earth. All of God's people, not a man, not a group of men, not a nation of men, can prevent God's redemptive plan from being fulfilled. Long ago, if man had been able, they would have banished religion from the world. Secularism and atheism is trying to do that now. They're trying with their best attempts. The world is pressing in on the truths of God's word and are resisting it as actively as they can. And if possible, Satan and all his schemes in this fallen world would seek to extinguish the light of the gospel of Christ. How come they haven't? Because they're under the hand of Christ. Every single, every single person on this earth is under Christ's authority and rule. And the only things that God lets allow in this earth, even the evil in this earth, are for the specific purpose of fulfilling His redemptive purposes. You say, how could God do that? God is wiser and, al- and almighty. It was through the hands of a man like the Apostle Paul who killed Christians his grievous sins that God eventually brought unto salvation and used as a tool for his people. It was through the hands of wicked men in the Old Testament, even like Cyrus the king of Persia, that God used an unsaved king to restore his people back to their 
inherited land in Israel. Likewise, brothers and sisters, whatever evil exists in this world, whatever plans and machinations of of fallen man exist in this world, they only exist and will serve the purposes of a sovereign and almighty God to his appointed ends in which he will bring his church, his bride, to perfection and glory in heaven. Glory to God God the Father. This has been God's plan. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Men who oppose the gospel should recognize, he says, that they cannot prevent the salvation of Christians. Not a man can stand against God. This gives us assurance, brothers and sisters, Because the salvation of sinners has not been left in the least degree to depend upon the fickle and sinful desires of men. You may say, I have a co-worker who doesn't love God or want to listen to the gospel. So what? Who is he? You may live in a culture that despises Christian truth, that hates the law of God, and and that persecutes Christians. So what? There's a God in heaven. And they are all subject to him. So go on, church, preaching the gospel. Go on telling others about Christ because your God has sovereignly elected that he will have his people and we will be successful. We're not done. As good as that is, we're not finished. I don't know what time it is, but we're still going on. You stay with me. We have some more to cover, just just a bit, okay? That food's going to be there when you get done, okay? I know you're hungry. This is food for your soul. He says next, You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is the inheritance of God's people. This is the thing that Christ came to bestow to those who were elected from God the Father and given to God the Son. It is the knowledge of God, which is the very essence of eternal life. We might define eternal life as knowing God. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to possess eternal life. Not that you have inherited a system or a religion, but that you have become acquainted with and know the one true God. This is eternal life. And John said this in 1 John 1.4. He says, That which which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with God the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says here that it is His specific intention to bestow on His people the true knowledge of God. And this knowledge here is not book knowledge. Don't think, okay, we possess certain facts and certain information that other people don't have. No, no. This is intimate, personal acquaintance and communion with the God in heaven. You can know Him. 
as if you know me, as if in the sense that we are, we are acquainted with one another. You, don't know, you may have heard my name before you ever knew me. And then when I came to Canada on my first uh, uh, trip, then you began to know me. And this is in the sense that, that Jesus prays here. He desires that we know the one true God in intimacy and communion. And it is only because of what Christ has done and only those who know the true God and Jesus Christ and have accepted him as their Savior, trusted in him by faith, those are the ones who actually know God. This is the definition of everlasting life. It is not, not for everyone to know the one true God. But it is only those who are joyfully acknowledging his sovereignty, who are glad acceptance of his love, and who have intimate fellowship with him, who, who know him in the word of God, who through prayer commune with him regularly, and through obedience walk in newness of life and commune with him throughout all their days. Brothers and sisters, it is your particular inheritance. It is your unique inheritance to know God. To know God. That's what distinguishes you between any other, any other person. Ordinary and unsaved. God has blessed us with the knowledge of Christ. Are you walking with him, brothers and sisters? Are you living in the light of this truth? Are you aiming as an ambition of your life to know and walk with the one true God? Is there a sin in your life that's separated between you and the Lord? Is there a prevailing pattern of iniquity that's grabbed hold of you and as a result, you don't commune with God any longer? Your fellowship with him is broken. Look here what Christ says. The very reason why he came is for you to know him. This is the uniqueness and the excellency of the Christian faith. Thirdly and finally, before we finish, what does it mean for the Son to be glorified? We started this section praying, seeing that Jesus prayed for his own glory. Glorify your Son. He returns to that again in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does this glory entail? The word glorify here can mean to praise and honor, praise someone, to glorify them. I praise them and honor them for whatever good characteristics they have. And it's something that is meant, it could be mean to suggest by the fact that God's purpose is that Christ should be honored, honored just as the Father is honored. But in this context, the word to glorify has the connotation of meaning to be clothed in splendor. It not only means to be given honor, but it means to be clothed in splendor. And verse 5 makes this clear. Jesus now asked the Father to reverse what happened at the incarnation. When Jesus came into this earth, he stripped himself of his robes of splendor. And he took upon him the form of a servant of a man. 
And to look at, Jesus was as ordinary a man like you and I, and there was nothing significant about his presence or his person. But Jesus now asked the Father to reverse it and said, Father, glorify your Son. Restore to him the splendor, the majesty, (laughs) and the dignity that was his person outwardly from before the world began. And this happened by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus looked beyond the cross to the glory that would be his when he returned to the Father, and he endured it. We're told in Philippians 2.9 that God highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in His presence, having been restored with His pre-eternal glory, and it exists in the, in the form of God and stands as the King of the universe. But He got there through the cross. Though it was a hideous profanity, Golgotha was the means of bringing the Son back to His glorified state. He accepts the cross here when he says, Father, glorify your son. And he endures it for the sake of the God the Father's glory. And this was the reward for Christ's sufferings. He is restored. But here's the key for you and I this morning, brothers and sisters. He's not only sitting for his own self today at the Father's right hand. He's sitting for you and I. The difference between Christ's glory in eternity and Christ's glory now is who he represents now before the Father. He stood for his own person and his own sake before God the Father, but now he's a mediator and a high priest for you and I. And not only does he sit himself, but we are also seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. He is our representative, pleads our case, and our acceptance to God Your forgiveness and your state before God is mediated because of Jesus. And Jesus here prays, Father, glorify me. Real quickly before I close. The entire purpose of this prayer is in light of of what we saw in chapter 15 and 16, and that's the opposition of a fallen world. Jesus is unashamedly teaching his disciples and us that as Christians, we exist in enemy territory. We exist in enemy territory. This world is in opposition to God. And the word world, do a word study this week for yourself and go through chapter 17 and see how many times the word world is used, underlined it. And you'll see that the whole backdrop of this prayer is in the light of the the fallen condition and the opposition of the world. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving you the spiritual truth so that you can remain steadfast and persevere through opposition. How can we endure living in a country that does not love and know God? How can we endure walking with Christ and and staying faithful to Him when our culture is pursuing things, who would have ever thought, like homosexuality, as if it's some kind of normal behavior? Who would have ever thought we'd lived in in a generation in which most of God's principles and laws are being overthrown? How can we remain faithful and honor the Lord? Jesus got an answer for you here. 
Father's plan for the Son, to, for Him to be glorified through the Son, and bringing His elect people to the to glory, will be accomplished. The Canadian politicians will not stop it. So today, brothers and sisters, you can have confidence. God's doing His work. He's building His church. And we can keep being faithful knowing that in the end, we will succeed. Amen? So here's what, that, here's what I tell you to do with that. You go tomorrow and tell somebody about Jesus. You go risk it for Christ. Because He's on the throne. Let's pray. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, for such a merciful and faithful high priest, such a sufficient Savior, who we can with confidence draw boldly and clearly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Our, we are confident this morning, not that we are, we are successful or always do right, we're confident, Lord, that our, our high priest is so pleasing to you that, we, cannot, that we, are, we are so free in him to come to you and find anything we need for life and godliness. We are confident this morning, not in ourselves, Father, but in Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that you would instill in your church a holy boldness, a, a zeal for godliness. Lord, let this, let this text draw us back to holiness. Lord, we are sinful. Lord, even this very week, many of us may have fallen in sin and, and, and failed you, Lord. And, and Lord, the shame and, and, the, and the guilt of that is weeping up in our souls. And we think, what, how can I keep moving, continuing to be a disciple of Christ? And yet, Lord, there stands our high priest, sitting at the right hand of the Father and ever living to intercede for us. And Lord, we are accepted. Lord, we know that your perfect plan is being enacted in this earth. Though it seems that we're discouraged at times that the church is, is, is relegated to the, to the side and we're just a small fringe minority that is hated and our principles are hated by the world. So how can we continue? Lord, thank you for such, such clear truth that, Lord, you are on the throne and working. Lord, we trust in you and we pray, Father, that your word will embolden us to be faithful witnesses in our culture and our generation. Let us at the end of our days hear well done, good and faithful service. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray.